Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. As usual, our guests today will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. For your listening pleasure, we will present to you the dynamic duo of Drs. Paul Carson, an infectious disease specialist and public health consultant in the state of North Dakota, and Dr. Eustace Fernandez, pulmonologist and critical care physician who oversees a COVID unit in a Northeast Indiana hospital. They're going to help us understand better the current state of the pandemic, both from the big picture and close-up viewpoints, the macro and the micro of the epidemic, and what we can reasonably expect during the end of this fall and the upcoming winter. Tom, I got to say, we have a great show tonight. I don't think we could have more exciting or qualified guests. So let's set the stage by discussing some of the big numbers, as you mentioned, so that when our guests come on, they can help us jump right into those numbers uh, and their meaning. Now, since our last COVID-related show with vaccine expert John Grabenstein, there's been a lot that's changed. Uh, the United States is seeing really the biggest surge in cases of the pandemic to date, with nearly 100,000 new cases diagnosed on October 30th. And on that day, in the Washington Post, Dr. Fauci, who is our, our COVID go-to as a nation, he had some pretty interesting things to say. Let me share them. We're in for a whole lot of hurt it's not a good situation, he said. Uh, all of the stars are aligned in the wrong place as you go into the fall and the winter season. With people congregating at home, indoors, you could not possibly be positioned more poorly, he said. He goes on to say, it's much more about some of the states like Utah, Nevada, South Dakota, North Dakota, where um, they, they've never had a pretty good reserve of intensive care beds and things like that. I hope they'll be okay, he says. But it's still a risk that as you get more surging, they're going to run out of capacity, In quote. So things have changed, and they've changed a lot, haven't they? And the capacity question is probably the biggest thing. As we'll discuss, the fatality rate is down, and that's good news. But hospital bed use is going up, and in some parts of the country, it could be outstripped. And that would be bad for people with any disease that needs to be treated in the hospital. For instance, where we are now in Indiana, I just checked minutes ago, and two-thirds of our intensive care unit beds are currently in use in the state of Indiana. Uh, 26% of all beds are being used for COVID and 41% for other conditions. Uh, and right now, of the 566 patients with COVID in ICU in Indiana, 34, about a third of them are on ventilators. And as we'll discuss, we've learned we want to avoid ventilation, if at all possible, in these patients. It's, it's probably worth pointing out, maybe we should have done it at the beginning, but we don't have an agenda for sharing this information. Our agenda, if we have one, is to share meaningful information. This is about yes. real cases, real beds, real people, and as we'll discuss, real deaths. Um, and it's not a political topic. And unfortunately, far too often, it has been presented as such in these weeks leading up to the election, hasn't it? Well, yes. And uh, in fact, we are recording this as people across the country are voting on uh, Tuesday, November 3rd. Interestingly, this week, at least five countries in Europe are going into various levels of lockdown. Germany, France, Belgium, the United Kingdom, and the Republic of Ireland all going into a state where they're closing a number of restaurants, bars, and gyms. Uh, some are keeping schools open, uh, but in some places you're not, even, you're not even allowed in the UK starting Thursday the 5th of November to play tennis or golf. It's amazing what some of the restrictions are, so it's become very political in those countries. Two things we want to introduce listeners to, and you've probably read about them, they're almost like competing declarations by groups of infectious disease epidemiology experts. The first one, the Great Barrington Declaration, signed in Barrington, Massachusetts, October 4th by three uh, leading public health epidemiology infectious disease doctors. And basically, they're saying, let society essentially go back to normal, except we want to give focused protection, and that's their term, focused protection to certain high-risk groups. Then there's another document called the John Snow Memorandum, named after kind of the father, the modern father of epidemiology. And in this one, other experts say that's irresponsible, letting the disease run rampant naturally 
through, quote, lower risk populations is flawed, uh, it's untried, and it would be harmful. We've got, as of minutes ago, 45,000 medical experts signing on to the Great Barrington Declaration, 6,900 experts signing on to the John Snow Memorandum. Doesn't mean that more votes <laughs> makes it right. <laughs> uh, but they're competing views. In the John Snow Memorandum, they say, you know, we still may need to use some very harsh non-pharmaceutical interventions. They don't say we will need to use lockdowns, but they don't say that we won't. So there's two competing visions. And what I'd like to say is there's truth in both of them. The beauty of the Great Barrington Declaration, they list out very well all the unintended consequences of the lockdowns, business closures, reduced access to medical care. I love that part of the document. And then you've got the John Snow Memorandum saying, you know, should we really let lower risk people just get the disease? And we're going to, you know, talk to Paul Carson about what he thinks about that and also get the the worm's eye view from Eustace Fernandez and the bird's eye view from Paul. But it's fascinating what's happened with these views. We've got, we've got a group of people that say we must do more, even though it isn't necessarily clear what more is. And we have a people that say we can't do more, even though it isn't really clear what more is on that side of the equation either. Like as often as the case, there are probably truths in both camps and we're at a loss, uh, I think, as a society, as to which camp to follow, aren't we? Amen to that. You got it, Chris. And now, before our break, the medical trivia question of the day. Ooh. Category, American air traveler during the pandemic. So the TSA has a website, and they list how many people go through screening every day. How did I find this? I don't know. But I did discover that on April 14th of this year, the Wednesday after Easter, TSA screened the lowest amount of travelers for any day this year, just over 87,000, which is just under 4% of the number they screened a year before on that date. So during the last week of October of 2019, a year ago, there were just over 15 million passengers screened. What percent of that 15 million passengers were screened in the last week of October, October 2020? In other words, last week, how many TSA passengers were screened last week compared to a year ago? You're going to have to wait till the end of the show to find out. We'll be back with both of our guests after the break here on Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. We are back and our two guests are with us, Dr. Paul Carson, North Dakota, Dr. Eustace Fernandez, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and we're going to start with a couple stories. Paul, you told me, you've told us, that your personal world has been rocked in the last week by COVID, not just in advising the governor and other leaders in your state, but in somebody who you knew personally and professionally in the state of North Dakota. What happened? Uh, so uh, our state, as I've as probably people have read in the news is, is uh, really struggling with the pandemic right now. We have more cases per capita, more deaths per capita. Uh, we're in the top two for hospitalizations per capita. And now uh, I made the statement, I think on this show, that I thought by the end of the year, we would all know someone in our circle of family or friends close to us that has either been hospitalized or died from COVID-19. And well, that little statement uh, came home to roost for me in, in a couple of ways. Um, one was uh, I read in the front page of the newspaper about uh, three, four weeks ago about uh, uh, a man who was running for our state legislature who was 55, and he was somebody I used to babysit, uh, lived uh, north of town. Um, uh, we both lived on little farms, and I babysat he and his uh, siblings uh, when I was in middle school, and uh, he died of COVID unexpectedly. He was mm -hmm. running for the state legislature. They, his name is still on the ballot today. And then much more closer to home was our uh, former pastor. He um, he had been pastor of the church I'm in now for 12 years. He um, baptized me my youngest daughter, he uh, administered First Communion to all of my four children, prepared them for confirmation. He was a, a very beloved pastor, a very dear friend, was uh, to our home too numerous of times to count. He had uh, about five years ago moved to another uh, parish, um, uh, the Basilica in Jamestown, North Dakota. And I had heard that he had contracted COVID and uh, um, probably 
through that uh, may have given COVID to our bishop. Uh, our bishop contracted COVID. They were at an event together uh, consecrating a new school that they just built in town there. And then on Tuesday morning, the vicar general for our diocese texted me that he had died the night before in the hospital in Jamestown. And I was, mm. um, I was just really devastated by that. He's 50, mm. 56 years old. He was in, we thought, pretty good health. Um, did not know that he was, I, I didn't know that he was that sick. And uh, it's just uh, left really kind of a swirl of emotions. And he what was, was the a, culture there in terms of, you know, the non-pharmaceutical interventions to try to prevent spread? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's interesting. Our state it was, um, and our governor was one of the most aggressive about testing uh, from the very beginning. So we test more than almost any other state out there. It's kind of us in Rhode Island that sort of are, you know, vie for number one and number two all the time. But that's kind of it as far as non-pharmaceutical interventions go. We, we, have, we are one of the lowest masking states on some recent survey data. Um, we have no mandates. We have no rules around that. There are recently some mayors instituted some quotes mandates that don't have any enforcement associated with it at all. Um, when you look at some of the data on mobility, distancing, one of the surrogate measures for that is uh, cell phone GPS mobility. We're, we're right back to where we were before the pandemic, moving around, doing our thing, going places exactly the same as before, where most of the states around us are, are um, uh, a lot less. So for all intents and purposes, we sort of act like business as usual here. And, uh, and there's a very, uh, you know, independent streak in our state. People don't like to be told what to do. Uh, we have a very strong kind of libertarian streak in the western part of our state and, uh, and very resistant to uh, um, any other measures to kind of stop the pandemic. But Paul, in fairness to your fellow citizens, you know, when we talked with you early in the pandemic, North Dakota was a shining star and that the case numbers were so low. And now, as we see, you know, you're mentioned in Dr. Fauci's quotation there, it's changed dramatically. What, what do you think has happened? What, what changed? I mean, North Dakota is the same as it was in March. What, what's changed, do you think? Or do you have any idea? Yeah, I, I think that um, several things. One is uh, we, at the very beginning, when everybody was kind of restricting things, we did a, a, a little bit um, at the very, very beginning. Um, but we just had hardly any cases. So I, you know, I think the cases came to the coasts, uh, you know, when they first got introduced and then, you know, after it sort of blew up there, it, it sort of followed in. I still think the weather does make a big difference, not so much because of the weather per se, although that may have an impact on it, but I think how much time people are spending their socializing indoors versus outdoors does make a big difference. So, you know, we saw it move to the Sunbelt States in the dead of the summer um, with things exploding in Florida, you know, Arizona, <laughs> Texas, California, uh, Louisiana. And we were good. You know, that's when we do everything outside. I think the Sunbelt States, they move indoors into air conditioning then. And um, as the weather started to turn and I th two things, weather started to turn here and kids uh, came back to college. Um, we really saw our bigger mm -hmm. cities that have colleges. They really kind of took off that week after kids came back to college. Those are great stories to get us started. I want to pivot to a thorough slice of America here in the ICU that Eustace works in. Tell us what you've experienced the last week or so, Eustace. Yeah, so um, I am a pulmonary and critical care physician. So I, in my practice, I take care of patients in the intensive care unit, but also uh, in my clinics, I take care of people with all sorts of respiratory diseases. But about two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to spend time in our COVID ICU. And I, I think what Paul is describing is probably correct, that areas that maybe were spared earlier in the pandemic are now kind of feeling it now. And, and we're certainly feeling it here in Indiana, in our county. We are seeing not only an increase in, in the number of patients as a raw number, but also an increase in the number of the ICU population which is incredibly important in terms of, uh, of care allocation, resource allocation, and bed allocation. Um, the acuity of these patients, so how sick are they really, is, is very, very high. And, and it's probably higher than I have seen at any point in my career. You know, on a, on a personal level, I would say that in that week that I was there, I experienced more death among uh, patients than I have 
in my entire career. And, um, and it was, you know, sometimes very sudden, sometimes there was some anticipation of it. So I can very much relate uh, to what Paul is talking about, uh, about somebody who you don't really have an understanding, even in the intensive care unit of how sick they are. And things can uh, pivot and decline very, very rapidly um, without a whole lot we can do about it um, very quickly. And that, that's probably um, the most jarring thing about, about taking care of patients in the intensive care unit uh, currently. And Paul, why among the states, there seems to be a couple, or at least one outlier, New York. New York is up north, but they aren't having a big bump in hospitalizations and deaths. Why are they different than some of the other northern states? So I, I always try and point out uh, hospitalization and deaths are both lagging indicators. So uh, that our case counts are starting to go up. So keep right. your eye on what happens two to four weeks from now. Um, but what I just looked up right before the show here, like what their mobility with well, that thing I just sort of talked about yes. is compared to us. They're, they're still very uh, restricted. They're very limiting what their uh, movement is. And they're, so I think, I There's think a reason. They, yeah, I think they're practicing the distancing. I think that my guess is they are masking. They're doing things different than the Midwest. But if we say, if, I mean, for the sake of sort of the broad picture for listeners, state by state, or if we just think about the nation in general, we've got case numbers going up. The number of people that are testing positive is going up. The number of uh, people being admitted to the hospital is going back up. Um, it appears as though the number or the percentage, you might say, of people dying has not reached phase one uh, numbers, but yet people, as you just point out, uh, are dying. Um, so, I mean, these points are not debatable. These are objective facts. People could debate as to why and what they mean, but listeners, please don't be misled by us or anyone else. These are real numbers that are, represent objective truths. Eustace, last week you told me that people who are dying of COVID in the hospital right now don't look like us. What do you mean? Well, um, it's, it's, it's we're young and handsome, right? right. Uh, so, 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 what, what I mean is that walking through my ICU, I wasn't really struck as to why the person had the severity of illness they had. Mm -hmm. um, so if we, if we look at how the patient should look are they in you know the seventh or eighth decade of life uh have do they have a compromised immune system we have we have a transplant program so we have some uh patients whose immune systems are not up to snuff and then and then um are they uh patients with poorly controlled diabetes or uh very uncontrolled obesity and those are the things that i i hone in on when i'm trying to gauge in my mind, how sick is this person and how likely are they to become more ill with this disease? And, and so what I can say is that though, though there was a high severity of illness and uh, a high degree of uh, morbidity and mortality, um, there were really no surprises. I wasn't seeing, you know, a 21-year-old college athlete come in and right. get incredibly ill with COVID. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen or it couldn't happen, but, but I wasn't really surprised by the population that I saw. And then when I would go out to our non-ICU COVID uh, floor and see some patients, I would sort of be able to stratify or, or guess in my mind at who might deteriorate. And there were no surprises there either. So, so that's what I meant by that statement. Interesting. Good news. This is something I know Paul Carson wants to hear about, something I want to hear about, and that's the good news with hospitalizations and deaths. This study came out October 23rd, Journal of Hospital Medicine of uh, New York City Langone Hospital. It was in the news back in March and April, too. Their mortality rate of hospitalized COVID patients dropped from 26% March to 8% in August. Is this real? And if it is, what's going on? Um, well, that is a good question. So, so I think there, there may be an element of lead time bias. So I think patients, when we were seeing them in March, um, were coming to us later because they weren't recognizing the symptoms, they weren't recognizing um, how quickly they were deteriorating. So I think we're getting to the patients a little bit earlier. Secondly, I think when we first um, began to see these patients, our first inclination was as soon as they began to require more oxygen, we would put them on the ventilator straight away. And when you put someone on a ventilator, uh, which is a machine that breathes for you right away, it unleashes a number of different things. So uh, a number of patients are um, you know, you have to deeply sedate them. Uh, sometimes you have to paralyze them. 
sometimes um, you have to do procedures on them which have inherent complications. And it seemed to sort of start a rapid progression towards clinical deterioration. So since then, we've begun to use um, more unconventional methods. We're, we're not putting as many patients on respirators in the first place. Secondly, um, we're doing things like proning patients, which means we put them on their belly. Um, usually this, in prior years, this was reserved for patients who are already on the ventilators. Now we're doing it with patients who are awake and able to help us move them around. And, and it seems, although the studies aren't clear, seems to provide some benefit. Um, we're using things like non-invasive ventilation, um, such as a, a BiPAP mask, which is similar to the CPAP apparatus that uh, many listeners may wear for sleep apnea. Um, to support the work of breathing. And we're using something called high flow nasal cannula, which is like the oxygen tube, but it allows us to give more flow and a higher percentage of oxygen. So those are things that are non-pharmacologic interventions. And then there's a whole host of drugs that, you know, I think uh, an intervention such as um, remdesivir, uh, steroids, anticoagulation. So that means blood thinners um, and, and more controversial things like convalescent plasma. Um, which, uh, you know, which are out there and, and are at our disposal. So, so in March, we had hydroxychloroquine and zinc that people were talking about. And, and now we were much further along uh, the path to finding therapeutics that may change the natural history. Again, not entirely sold on really any of them, but there are more options available. So if we go through the lists, Steroids, do they help or do they hurt? Or do they only help a small sliver? So my experience is that, is that steroids seem to help. Uh, and I should say as a, as a corollary, earlier is always better. Sometimes okay. when they enter the ICU and are, are already in distress and needing the ventilator, I'm not really convinced that any interventions that we've employed oh, thus far oh. are helpful. Monoclonal antibodies, they got a lot of press with the president. Yeah, and... and Interestingly enough, some of the clinical trials in hospitalized patients with severe disease were stopped. Yes, um, because quite literally. For, for, not, uh, being, uh, for not working, but may, may unintentionally cause harm. There is, uh, uh, I've, I've recently read about um, some concern that introducing a monoclonal antibody, um, like the president got, when the illness is already severe and the body's already trying to uh, make its own antibodies, may in fact be harmful to the patient. Well, and Eustace, speaking of, uh, of the president, I believe he also got convalescent serum, so a blood product from someone who's presumably established immunity. What, we thought that was going to be maybe, you know, the silver bullet. What does that look like? So my personal experience has been quite discouraging. I think the patients I've, I've seen benefit in, it's been early on. And I think the problem is twofold. Number one, I think that we are not sure of what the neutralizing antibody titer is in the blood products we're getting. So I'm not sure that we know that there's a high enough antibody titer in each unit that we're giving um, our patients. Um, the second thing is that once a patient begins to get sick, it's important to acknowledge that you're still giving a blood product from another human being. And that set has some unintended consequences. The most concerning one, uh, as it relates to COVID-19, in my opinion, is the prothrombotic nature of convalescent plasma. So there's the possibility that it may induce clot, which we know from autopsy studies happens at a, at a microscopic level, clots in the lung in, in many of the patients who do not survive this disease. So as they get sicker and sicker, I become much more conservative about, uh, about convalescent plasma. Hmm. There's this big trial that the World Health Organization started back in the spring. And I remember Paul and I talked about it a lot on some of the episodes, the solidarity trial looking at four drugs, remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, an HIV drug called lopinavir, and interferon beta. And the interim analysis basically suggests that none of them benefit survival. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, I try and ignore uh, that preliminary data because it makes me want to cry a little bit. Uh, you know, it's, but, it, but it is what it is. You know, it's, a, it's a multinational study, tons of patients, tons of hospitals, et cetera. And, and there may be a problem with that approach. You know, the more um, experiences, the more patients you get, I think the stronger the study. Um, but we don't know exactly what usual care looks like. 
at all of those institutions across many different countries and across many different cultures. So that may be a confounding factor. So I, I don't think that my read of solidarity is not um, strong enough to have me withhold data from- Withhold um, drugs. I'm sorry, withhold drugs from, from a patient um, who is, is sick with this disease because there are lack of viable alternatives. Um, I would also say that if I sense harm, the potential for harm, like with convalescent plasma, I certainly wouldn't give those drugs. But I think there's enough room there uh, to continue to give the drugs. But it almost sounds, listening to you, like the therapeutic interventions just aren't there yet. It just hasn't panned out. And what we're better at is the supportive interventions, the, the different types of ventilation that you describe. Is it possible that those combined with maybe a population that's not as likely to succumb, that's why we're seeing lower death rates, or is there a better explanation? That may be uh, the case. I mean, you know, uh, I think time will, will tell, but I think you make an important point that none of these things uh, are, are hitting the ball out of the park, especially when they enter um, the intensive care unit. There is uh, renewed and some encouraging data with regard to the use of ECMO, which is a mechanical support for the lung. And so we have um, taken patients very, very early into their course on the ventilator before they can have any of these um, negative side effects of being on the ventilator. And we are basically inserting large IVs into major blood vessels, taking the, basically bypassing the lung to uh, remove carbon dioxide and add oxygen back in to the bloodstream. Um, and you know, it is a very, very aggressive therapy, and it's not right for everybody, um, but it certainly is something that maybe will show promise. Uh, initial experience from, uh, from Wuhan was very discouraging with regard to ECMO. More recent data suggests that it uh, can afford survivability. Well, let's change, let's change our break, and that is you have talked in the past, Eustis, about certain vitamins. And we now have evidence that if you are deficient in a certain vitamin, it's good to take it. What is it? Vitamin D. Um, that would be my answer. I don't know if Paul has a different answer, but, but to me, it seems that vitamin D has the most evidence to um, People talk a lot about zinc and vitamin C and, and uh, quercetin and some other uh, potent antioxidants. Uh, but vitamin D, to me, uh, seems to have the most data to support it. Patients who are vitamin D deficient seem to do worse. Vitamin D itself causes the body to produce uh, certain proteins called de uh, defensins, which may, uh, which are actually um, pretty strong antivirals. And there is uh, some evidence that vitamin D uh, can interact with this angiotensin pathway that we've talked about mm. to cause downregulation of the ACE2 receptor, uh, which allows the virus to enter the cells. Tom, I think our astute listeners would, are probably counting on their fingers now. This might be the fourth time we've reversed our position on vitamin D. But with that, I think we're going to take a, I think we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more on Dr. Doctor. Abortion, pornography, embryonic stem cell research, corporate contributions to planned parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio with two of our great guests. Paul, let's move from treatments to a hot topic, immunity. Now, I'll have to admit, my wife got COVID, didn't get very sick, and I was on vacation and I sort of did my best to get it, treating it a little bit like chicken pox. And it never worked. Uh, she, she swears that I had it in the spring and I'm just too dumb to have noticed it. Um, but, but immunity. So what's the data tell us about immunity? What does it mean for us? How important is the vaccine going to be to ending uh, the pandemic? Where do we stand with vaccine trials and sort of all things vaccine? So I'll, I'll start with my sort of blanket statement on vaccines. It's our only realistic way out of this. Um, mm. It's absolutely essential. 
So on the immunity question, um, you know, there was a, a couple of er early studies that showed antibody levels may wane as early as eight weeks. And, you know, that had everybody really discouraged. And, uh, and in fact, uh, one of the studies showed um, that in people who were asymptomatic, um, so, you know, minimal to no symptoms, up to 40% of people were kind of uh, missing antibodies out at, at between eight to 12 weeks. Um, that said, there's been several more of these types of antibody studies with a couple showing, yep, you know, things may decline uh, over time, and, but it uh, depends on how you measure it and what kind of antibodies you do. So Iceland just did a huge study on, you know, they track, they've been following, you know, a large number of their percentage of their population who's been infected. And they showed uh, out to four months, people still had 91% still had good antibody levels. I think more importantly is when you do um, another look at the immune system, which is looking at uh, part of our immune system we call cell-mediated immunity, which is, is, is probably as or maybe even more important at fighting viral infections. Um, that looks to be pretty durable. Uh, a recent study just came out in the last week showed six months out, very good evidence of cell-mediated uh, cell immunity, what we call T-cells. You may hear that mentioned um, sometimes on this. We have data from the original SARS-CoV-1 and MERS. So these are similar, very deadly coronaviruses that even three years out or four years out, or um, people have uh, very good evidence of T-cell or cell-mediated immunity. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that we, d we may make a durable immune response. Um, I'll, I'll balance that with the rising number of quotes, reinfections. So, you know, we're, we're hearing about people who test positive again after, you know, a span of three or four months. Against that is that uh, that seems to be pretty rare. I think we're, we need to learn a lot more about that and what that means. But the vaccine candidates, almost everyone that's sort of in the pipeline toward, you know, towards the end here in phase three. So all the vaccine candidates uh, that are in like late stages of trials, phase three trials, are all showing uh, both pretty good antibody responses and I think more importantly, good uh, T cell responses. Um, so Paul, if I could ask, you mentioned earlier that the vaccine is our way out. Maybe paint a picture for listeners what that actually looks like. So I think it's confusing. If the vaccine arrives tomorrow, it doesn't mean we'll have zero cases, right? Are we, are we looking at, a, at an influenza type uh, circumstance where the vaccine decreases it? Or what do you think the panacea post-vaccine arrival looks like? So it's a big open question right now. We don't have the phase three data yet, but, yeah. but Moderna, one of the, the RNA vaccines that's uh, leading the pack um, is done enrolling. So they should be getting some safety and efficacy data very shortly. Pfizer vaccine is almost done enrolling. They should be similarly um, getting safety and efficacy data very soon. We don't know where it's going to land. I mean, it might not be efficacious at all. It might be completely protective. It might not prevent infection, but it might prevent severe disease. That, that We see that, for example, with influenza. You may get infection, but you, uh, if you're vaccinated, you often um, don't, uh, aren't as prone to being hospitalized or dying from uh, the virus. So we just don't know yet. But the, the reason it's our only way out of this is because um, to, to get to herd immunity, which we should talk about too, what does that really mean? And, and, and do you get actually herd immunity through natural infection? And short answer to that is not very often, if at all. Um, but uh, to get to that, uh, to get to ease, even some stability of the epidemic means hundreds and hundreds of thousands more deaths. Um, so I, I think uh, from a public health standpoint, I mean, the vaccine is the only, only way out. The prediction right now is 400,000 deaths in the U.S. by February 1st. Uh, and that's if people, 85% of people wear masks and socially distance. Otherwise, they're predicting 514,000 deaths by the end of February. And it's the Institution of, Institute of Health Metrics evaluation out of yeah, Washington. Out of the University of Washington, yeah. So those are pretty chilling uh, predictions. Just We need to recognize those are models, and they've, sometimes they've been close, sometimes they've been way off. I don't think that's an unrealistic projection, though. I, I think that's we're almost at a quarter possible. million deaths now, right? Right, right. We're I think over two hundred thirty thousand some yes. deaths now, and and the pace is picking up. Um, well, Paul and Eustace, we promised listeners uh, some time back a winter forecast for COVID. So here we are at 
over 200,000 deaths. And as everyone knows, we're headed into the flu season, which always brings a number of deaths, but maybe even more frightening for those of us in the system is what that could do to the healthcare infrastructure and hospital, ventilator, ICU capacities. Both of you, how do you see the rest of the year shaping up when we think about hospitalizations, capacity, and deaths over the next few months? Um, You know, if I start just kind of going from my own state here, we're on the knife's edge right now. We have several of our major hospitals on full divert. They they have no beds. We've had uh, one of our hospitals uh, in Minot, North Dakota, they are they're pulling nurses from the clinic. They've, you know, sort of demoted, if you will, nurse practitioners back to bedside nurses because they do not have enough nursing staff to staff the beds. They are out of beds and they are doing shelter in the ER uh, until they until a bed opens. So they are basically using ER beds for um, uh, hospitalized patients. Wow. Uh, we've heard Wisconsin, another real hot spot, uh, set up a field hospital uh, to try and handle uh, excess. Um, I think. The upper Midwest, and you know, as we move into winter, things are picking up. I'm very worried about stretching our hospital capacity, and if, and if an influenza epidemic comes right on top of that, we're going to be really struggling. Eustace. Yeah. I mean, what I think is that, you know, you put this in, I put this in my mind into three buckets, you know, uh, is there physical space for the patients? Is there staff of doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists? Etc. to look after them, which is probably our biggest um, source of worry, honestly. And then the third is, are there therapeutics? You know, are we going to have enough of drug X, Y, Z in the pipeline coming towards our patients uh, to be able to take care of them? I would also um, add on that, that, you know, in my environment, we're busy across the board. You know, it's not just COVID hospitalizations that are going up. Um, we're seeing every manner of hospitalization, stroke, heart attack, need for urgent bypass because they didn't get their stents earlier in the year, um, patients with upstaged cancers. So we are seeing all of these non-COVID um, but COVID-related illnesses kind of exploding. So influenza or not, I think we are, are seeing the consequences of delays in care for non-COVID uh, illness. And, and that's, that's a big part of my practice um, in my office practice. And, and we're seeing quite an uptick in regular ICU admissions for other problems. So some of the people who are saying we should just go back to normal except protect a few, they point to, you know, maybe five per thousand people who get infected die of it. But you're giving some good reasons of why looking at deaths isn't the only thing. And then there's something I just learned about. I want you to tell our listeners about uh, something called post-COVID persistent syndrome. You know, what's going on in a lot of patients short of death? Right. So, so I think we all um, have this idea that uh, who are taking care of these patients, that death is, is sort of a blunt instrument and does not tell the whole picture. Um, because after, you know, if someone survives, you have to say, well, what does that survival look like? Does it mean that my loved one is going to be attached to a ventilator for the rest of their days? Does it mean that they're going to have um, uh, some of the described issues with, um, with mental slowing, disruption of sleep-wake cycle, mental, persistent mental fogginess, shortness of breath, and scarring of the lung that permanently affects their capacity to function. And so, so it's like almost like an analogy, um, like when we had casualties coming back from the uh, Iraq and Afghani wars, Right, people would come back, um, but they would be uh, multiple limb amputees, or they would have uh, psychological or mental incapacitations that we were not, as a healthcare system, ready to take care of. So there is a strain that exists um, for people who survive um, their hospitalization and their critical illness, and and it's important to remember that these are not perfectly healthy people who are coming into their critical illness. These are people who are already older, sometimes obese, poorly controlled chronic medical conditions, or immune compromised in some other fashion. So these are people who, are, who do not have great bounce back potential and are already struggling 
even in their pre-COVID days. So, so we have to have capacity to deal with their chronic medical needs afterwards. The other issue with that is that if you look at, at surveys that are done, and, and they're not very good studies about this, about the COVID long hauler syndrome, they're not very good. They're phone surveys. Um, they're varying in degrees of illness uh, of the patients they're surveying. And it doesn't give us a clear picture yet about who gets it, how severely impaired they are, um, but, but it's enough, and I've seen enough in my, in my office practice to say this is a real thing, and it's going to change this person's life, not just transiently, but may have lifelong implications for them. So I think, you know, looking at mortality alone is a, is a blunt instrument, and it's important, of course, but, but these other consequences of COVID should not be minimized. So in light of all this great information you've shared, it sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, like these two documents, the, the Great Barrington Declaration, the John Snow Memorandum, maybe present a false dichotomy. Maybe there needs to be more finesse than either of those documents can give us. What do you think about that, Paul? Well, in full disclosure, I signed the John Snow Memorandum, so um, I, I lean towards one way. So the Great Barrington uh, Declaration, I think... Uh, rightly, as you pointed out, Tom, acknowledges that there are deleterious effects in and of themselves when you do full-on sort of lockdowns. Right. The error I, th- I believe they make is that they sort of equate every non-pharmaceutical intervention and in, in lump them all together as a lockdown. I mean, masking doesn't right. shut down our economy and doesn't disrupt, uh, you know, most business and, and schools and so on. So, when they say in there, get everybody but sort of the vulnerable back to living normal, I, I just, I don't, I think that's a false dichotomy that it's, that, that keeping some distancing, wearing a mask, you, doing prudent measures, th- those, those I think most people could agree on and, and doesn't need to be resort back to normal. I think this idea that we can somehow separate the vulnerable in, in our population from the healthy yeah. And kind of shelter them and do this focus protection that they talk about, I think is, is false. It, it's already proved wrong. I mean, certainly has not borne out in my own state here. We have taken marked pains to try and protect our nursing home residents with, you know, aggressive testing of all staff and visitors, screening at the door, lots of PPE, all kinds of cleaning measures. And it's ripped through a, a number of our nursing homes with devastating effect. Eustace? Yeah, I've signed, I've read both documents, signed neither. And I think it's important to point out that, that they both seek certain things that are laudable. One is, is solidarity um, within communities. The second is protection of vulnerable and avoidance of death for as many people as possible. And they both have a flaw that I, I think is that, is that they point, um, they rely on an infrastructure that doesn't exist. So the Great oh. Barrington declaration relies on our ability and the infrastructure that exists to do rigorous testing, to put caregivers into nursing homes who have recovered from COVID or have perceived immunity. And I'm not sure that that exists. And on the other hand, the John Snow declaration acknowledges the deleterious effects of these non-pharmaceutical interventions on things like the economy and social structure and things like that. However, the infrastructure does not exist in, in a country like ours and certainly doesn't exist in a country like my parents, uh, like India, to support all of the deleterious uh, economic and public health implications of, uh, of doing this sort of aggressive or more aggressive approach. It seems to me um, that the Jon Snow statement is, is more um, focused primarily on, on the COVID pandemic and what we can do to prevent mortality from COVID. But when I talk to my patients in my clinic, you know, it is heartbreaking to see the numbers of people who have lost employment, who are going to lose um, small businesses if they go to 50% capacity, who are delayed on procedures like I do, like a bronchoscopy to go and look for a lung cancer or a screening colonoscopy or have children who haven't been properly vaccinated. I mean, those are, those are real things that are really going to be hard to measure down the line, as well as the social, uh, the effects of social isolation on the psyche 
on spiritual and mental health. And again, those are very, very difficult things to gauge. So uh, Eustace and Paul both, as we, as we transition a bit, we're about to enter the busiest season in our culture, right? We've got uh, a lot of us have kids coming home from college. We've got Thanksgiving. We've got Christmas holidays with what we used to call Christmas parties, maybe not this year. Um, but what does all of this mean for the, the social aspect uh, of this time of year? How do we get through this phase? I think there's a lot of people in public health that are rightfully very concerned that we will see a big surge after both of our respective holidays. Um, we are prepping for a surge in cases after Thanksgiving. And a lot of the little uh, sort of mini clusters and outbreaks we've already identified with household gatherings and, and little dinner parties. So, and so on. what do the four of us do with our college kids coming home? Yeah. So what do we do? So very practically, uh, I'm, you know, I'm facing this with my four adult children who live in all over the U.S. right now. And um, <clears throat> one of them has uh, just finished being a focus missionary for four years. She knows like every person and, uh, you know, she's the definition of an extrovert, knows every person in the Twin Cities right now and socializes with them on a very regular basis. Um, I have a daughter who's an OB resident who's, you know, coming back. She's exposed to COVID patients all day long. I've asked all of my uh, children to do their very best for the two weeks before Thanksgiving to really try hard to limit their interpersonal exposures and uh, contacts that we all kind of do as best we can kind of a self quarantine before we gather together uh, with like potentially even some grandparents and, and my two parents are, aren't going to come because they're at home. They're, will you distance or do any mask wearing? Um, we will. If uh, my children say that they were not able to really kind of do that. Eustace, what are you doing for yours? Yeah, I think uh, I'm with uh, Paul on much of this. You know, we saw a big spike right after Labor Day weekend. And the spike we're going to see after Thanksgiving and Christmas could be much, much worse. Um, we're asking our, our college-age daughter to uh, keep distance while at college when able um, to mask on campus before she comes home. And uh, for family gatherings, we are going to mask when in close proximity to each other with vulnerable members of our family. So my, my wife's parents would be certainly in a, in a higher risk population. And, uh, and we're going to observe, you know, good hygiene, but I think distance and hand hygiene are going to be critical um, to these, for these events. I mean, I think those things and protecting the vulnerable, um, making, making good decisions about who should come and who shouldn't come. 30 seconds each. How do we get through pandemic fatigue right now? You know, I, in some of my dialoguing with Sister Mary Diana Drager, she uh, reminded me about what a great book Father Walter Chiswick's uh, He Leadeth Me is. And like, you know, uh, and I, I encourage that one for spiritual meditation and praying uh, on um, you know that that this is a man who endured incredible sufferings in uh, in imprisonment in Russia. Um, he leadeth me. Yes, Eustace. Pandemic fatigue. Pray, pray, pray. Find good and short spiritual reading to kind of carry you through and live of the sacraments. I mean, that's you know I think looking at each one of these patients, brother or sister, as uh, as another Christ is is the only way we get through this. And and I think you know in terms of what advice I'm giving to people about how they should carry um, through this, it's looking at, at the very real implications of their actions on others. Paul Carson, Eusis Fernandez, thank you so much for being with us for our listeners here on Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the Redeemer Radio Virtual Studios. We're happy to be with you, and we're even more happy to give you the answer to this episode's medical trivial question. The short version of the question is, how many more people were screened in TSA this October, the last week, than October 2019? Take it away, Tom. Well, it was actually less people were screened, and the percentage compared to last year, 37% compared to last year. So up from a low of 4%. In mid-April, but when I was in airports, I've been in many airports the last uh, six weeks, and if this is just over one-third full, I don't want to go back to seeing full again.
Well, you know, I would rather do anything than travel during the holidays. And as we just talked about uh, with Paul and Eustace, I wonder what those airports are going to look like for the crazy Thanksgiving uh, and Christmas travel. I'd love to say that they're going to be empty, but I bet they're not. But uh, I, I was glad for their practical advice about having our college kids you know, they can't quarantine for two weeks before they come home, but they can be more careful with distancing and masks. Otherwise, there's going to be a huge spike in cases around the country. And for me, I'm not just trying to protect myself, but my patients whose average age is over 70. And if I'm out of commission for two weeks operating on them or if I infect them, that's bad news. I'll tell you what, Tom, back and forth. You do your takeaway. I'll do it. I'll match you a takeaway. I love the takeaway that Eustace pointed out that the five per thousand mortality rate is not the key thing. It's important, but there are many people who get prolonged reductions in their health for who knows how long, if not the rest of their lives. Oh, I agree. I like that a lot. And, and that idea that mortality rate is just way too crude. Uh, of a, of a yes. measure. I, I liked, um, you know, this idea, I, I didn't like it. I, I appreciated Paul's pointing out that this is bad. <laughs> I don't know a better way to say it than that. This, this, is, this is bad. And, you know, we're recording tonight's episode uh, as the election is taking place. And this pandemic has become so politicized. And that's misfortunate because regardless of who wins the election, there's a lot of death ahead of us. We may double our national number of dead citizens yes. uh, by the end of the holidays. And that's, that's hard not to pause and really, really think on. Well, thank you all of, all of our listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We're brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And while you're at it, be sure to rate and review our show to help other listeners find us. Send us your questions. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Tell us what you'd like to hear more or maybe even less of. And be <laughs> sure <laughs> to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we are signing off till your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.